A lack of bird call. A sense of encroaching light. And then far away the awful dawn bawling of a beast in great pain. For a while it stopped. As though birds and ditch creatures were listening. Respectful of approaching death. is the reality of the divide. It never goes away. It's like a fight within a family, which is always much more horrendous and much more disemboweling than a fight with a stranger. I, I think it's so much more personal, it's much more frightening. And yet I have, you know, if, you, you're, if you're going to start to examine that, you say, well, do I have any trouble with Protestant friends or with any element of, with, of Protestant people that I know that I mix with? None whatsoever. And I don't think there's any pretense or anything. I think that I can talk with them. But I actually do know that their thinking is slightly different from mine. Where would you call it? Is the, is, 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 For is the past the, 40 is, is, years, the, the writer, Eugene McCabe, and his wife, Margot, have lived at Dramad, their farm on the Monaghan for Manor border. You'd wonder. I do remember very, very distinctly and I'd say this was general over the country, I can remember when there was those, I would only call them, when, when the British Army murdered those people in Derry. I can remember the feeling as an Irish person, and I would say I would be very kind of, very non-violent, very middle of the road, verging almost to the right. Um, I can remember the feeling of helplessness. And I remember thinking... Uh, that Russia was the other part. I remember thinking, is there nobody that can help us? Like, here they are and again actually murdering us when we actually lift our heads. And the actual rage that I felt, and I wasn't educated. And then I remember the, it was the um, official IRA, they went over to Aldershot, and they, I think they killed people over there. And it was the only period during this whole thing when I, fe- when, when I actually felt that nothing that could happen to, if you like, the other side would worry me as an Irishman because they're actually shooting us in the streets again when we're asking for our rights. So, um, what started this question, Laura? I sometimes think that if he could write other than political things and yet everything ends up being political that he might be more relaxed about his writing. Uh, I know that because of where we live and how long it's been going on, because it's been going on since 1957, when we were here only two years at that stage, that it, it of course, has coloured our whole lives here. But I think it would rest his head if he could write things that were not to do with the North or political things. Um, because we're getting it in news, because we're, we're living where we're living, that he, he, he might be a more relaxed person if, if, if he wrote about different things and maybe looked into different things and thought about different things, that it's there all the time, not only in a physical, in the field sense, 
but also in the house sense because of what Eugene is writing. McCabe's last book, Death and Nightingales, a sombre, sometimes violent tale of passion and betrayal across the sectarian divide in 19th century Fermanagh, was critically acclaimed when it first appeared in 1992. Um, it's a very odd reason how I began to write it. I had stopped writing for a very long time because I was deep in farming. And I just happened to get out of dairying, and at least by quota, I still had dry stock. And um, Tom Kilroy phoned and said, "Look at Eugene, would you, would you, would you come in as moderator for a workshop?" And uh, here in Galway, and I couldn't say no because the farming was very well reduced. And I tried to wriggle out of it. And he said, "Oh, come on, come on, you can. It's a simple thing." And I said, "Well, I don't, I don't like. Come on, do it." He said, and. When I met Tom and we went through the scripts and the people who would be on that course, he said, you know, jokingly, I think, you know, part of the work here is, you know, that you actually, you know, you do something yourself. You know, you don't, moderator doesn't get out. He doesn't sit at the head of the table and say, what are you doing and how's it going? He produces, you know, it's all very democratic. Uh, but I didn't know whether or not in Wink I had to, but I thought, well, in all fairness, if you're sitting around with, ten people on the edge of their seats all tearing the barrels out of each other's works it does seem a bit unfair if I don't produce something as well so I produced the first chapter of Death and Nightingales um, I then put it aside and when I took it out and read that first chapter I thought this is good because when you get a distance from your own work you, you can be totally... She went through the fort towards the ravine a black cleft in the brightening landscape it was just gone three o'clock the 200 feet of path to the rivulet led down she knew at a broken thorn bush. Twice branches caught at her dress, the second time unstitching the front seam. When her foot caught in the bare forked roots of ash they grazed her ankle, it became darker as she went lower, fern fronds growing evilly from the mossy branches of elongated oak. Utter silence and solitude as she reached the floor of the ravine with its grave-wide rivulet, its bed of rust-iron stones and her brown pools flecked with amber foam. At first she thought it was the cry of a vixen calling her cubs. No? Behind? Ahead? Above? It seemed to be approaching a creature in distress, bird or beast. There it was again, closer, almost human-sounding. Flying? Running? Could it be an infant cry? She felt the creep of horror at the nape of her neck as she strained, trying to see. The squealing seemed alongside her, then she saw it. A white owl grounded, a baby rabbit gripped in his talons, the hooked beak tearing ravenously into the wriggling upturned stomach. Suddenly her voice blended with the rabbit squeals as she stumbled towards them, crying out. The owl back flapped into flight, still gripping its prey, until it gained enough height to circle and glide away towards the loch, down the dark winding rivulet, the rabbit squeals growing fainter and fainter, the cries so human she felt tears smarting in her eyes. Well, you this girl in, 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 in late 19th century Fermanagh, and she is, um, her mother is dead. There is old money in this house, and it's an old farm. Uh, she, her mother was pregnant before she married, and so that, in fact, this child is not the daughter of the, of the, of the main, of the main um, character in the novel, Billy Winters. Um, they both know the relationship, she then falls in love, but I want to put that in inverted commas, with a, t with a tenant on Billy Winter's farm. Um, when he discovers that there is old gold in the house, 
he suggests that they steal this gold. She wouldn't be the person, uh, the kind of person who would steal a farthing from anybody, but for love and because of the fact that occasionally when Winters is drunk that he may grope at her or can be very unpleasant and difficult, uh, she decides, yes, I'm, I, 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 I'm, I, they owe me. And, and also because of the historical situation, the feeling all over Ulster and indeed still all over Ireland that at one time the other race, the other tribe came over, took over the whole country and not until 1921-22 did we have partial freedom. In Ulster it still goes on. There is a feeling, and I'm quite sure this is the same in, in many parts where there's colonies, that no matter what happened, no matter how the colonisers behave, the people who are colonised feel that they're entitled to do anything they like to those that have colonised and abused them. So I'm trying to explain why she, why she doesn't have any guilt complex about taking this gold. She plans she plans to take it. She uh, There is a concert on in, in Enniskillen. She doesn't go to it. He comes back drunk when he's asleep. She puts a little bromide in his whiskey. She takes the um, She takes the gold leaves and on her way into into Enniskillen she stopped by a roving dummy who was obviously terrified and conveys to her that in fact there there are two men in the scrub there's a 30 acre scrub alongside this avenue and he, the dummy was asleep obviously and he wakens up and he looks and he sees and knows that there is a grave being dug and that the grave is for her she goes back into the living room opens the safe and she's putting the gold back in when Billy Winters, who she presumed to be fast asleep and will be sleeping for 24 hours, comes down, catches her, brutalises her, kicks her out, and then, of course, it's it's high gothic drama where she sort of says, well, you know, somewhere, sometime, I will some way kill my lover, Liam Ward, or I will die trying. And then she rows him, she, he rows her out to an island that's in, in, in Loch Heron, and on the way out, she pulls the bung in the boat. She knows that he can't swim, he drowns, and Billy Winters arrives at the end, and there is a kind of rec- reconciliation. Um, in other words, you feel that the story is not quite completely over because it is 1883, and of course now in 1994, indeed the story is not over. The story is still going on, and um, it is, of course, if you like, it's it's a metaphor for everything that's happened in 1610 until now. It's a metaphor about conquest and those who are subjected to it. Towards the end of last year, McCabe sold off his remaining stock, intent on dedicating himself exclusively to writing, till then a sporadic occupation. When I had my first little television play accepted, I then decided I just sold my dairy cows and I sat down for some years and I became a writer. And I became, I suppose, a reasonably successful writer. I ended up doing commercial work, the Reardons, that kind of thing, because I had to make money and keep this place together. And then, possibly, when a play would go wrong, or maybe I wouldn't have stories published, I feel, you know, uh, well, what they say around here is, fuck this for a racket. I just, I would, I would say, drop it. And I'd go back to farming, and I'd get an awful lot of sheep, and I'd get into a whole lot of things, or I'd plant trees, which I've done. And, uh, then I think, anybody can plant trees, anybody can feed sheep, anybody actually can write. Am I not? I mean, it's not fair, really. 
apart from my, my of, of, of wanting to succeed as a writer and all the things that are naturally you want, you want to do your best, it's not fair that I actually should lock up my talent because I'm peeved that something hasn't gone well. So gradually I creep back into it again. and But each time, that's when I suppose, when Margot says I'm spoiled, that very other writers are in a position, they have to just bloody well sit down and write the next novel or get back to journalism or take a job. I could actually turn to the farm. and um, But in actual fact, what happened was that usually when the farm became dicey, I usually had to go back to writing because I would be paid for doing what I did, good, bad or indifferent. Now, money wasn't important to me. What was important to me was that the work should be of a very high excellence. That was the actually only thing that mattered to me. Uh, and I can't pretend I'm indifferent to money because, of course, you need money to, to live. But all I worried about, and if... if if writing didn't work as well as I wanted it to, I would become disheartened and say, well, I, you know, I, I, no, I'm not going to write again. I can't be bothered. I, you know, it's let somebody else do it. But in fact, then again, I suppose it's in the veins. It's, it is a disease. And you just keep going back to it because unavoidably that's what you are. Um, but then there was almost a 15-year gap from now, from when I began farming again, dairy farming again in 1980, literally until 1994, 93. Um, I wrote nothing but a little, a little children's um, fable. That's the only thing I wrote. Yeah. I, I just, I did nothing. And people, people got used to stop. People used to phone and write and stuff, and then they just stopped. You know. I suppose they began to wonder was I dead or had I gone away but I was here all the time I can I can I can remember a remote cousin of mine he was a fellow called Maguire he, he's out from from close to my everybody's Maguire out there he was close to my grandfather's house and he was a folk fiddler and story, storyteller and there's a field called the Haggard Field here and I was up ploughing it and working hard as a young man I was 25 at the time and William Maguire stopped under the hedge. It was pouring rain, and he came up into the field, and he said, Well, young McCabe, he said, How do you like Dremard? Which is the name of this place. And I said, I like it, William, but it's hard work. I'll tell you one thing, he said. It's made a cut of better men than you. And I certainly remember that. <laughs> I knew people who had been here who were very well healed, who had bakeries, and who were... Uh, one of them was a solicitor. and that They had other sources of income. And I'm... I wouldn't exactly say that they were hobby farmers, but that kind of... I knew that what he said to me was true. It's made a cut of better men than you. And another thing another fellow who was working for us said once, he said, it takes a big mon to run a big place, you know? That's when something had gone terribly wrong and things looked very dicey. And you've, you get the feeling, OK, that I'm here under false pretenses. I'm not a farmer. And if you like, you could feel the eyes of the people looking and saying, well, he might have three, four years, you know, and then, well, he might have another four, and then he might, and then he's here 20 years. Buckham, how does he do it? Now he's near another time. Now I'm here 40 years. I'm longer in this house than anybody who's been in it, and it was built in 1835. So, in fact, we're kind of heroic. We might. <laughs> the big men that... What was it? The... Um, a bigger picks, it made a cut of better men than you. Well, I don't think it hasn't made a cut of me yet. <laughs> so, but, but with my cattle gone now, and I'm sort of between these two. Where, where 
Whereabouts are we now? We are on Lucky Bridge, and it's a bridge that was blown up by the British Army 12 years ago, and there are about 24 bollards here because, you know, the, the Republican element keep opening it and the British Army keep closing it. It's a very famous or infamous bridge, um, but um, it's very much, the, 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 the as I say, the, the landscape that I rely on for, 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 the, for explaining the divide in the two communities. And, and you're saying <coughs> that, that it was closed 12 years ago. Did you have any warning that it was going to close? Well, I think apart from the fact that the guards, the guards just kept people back and uh, the British Army simply blew it up and they, they put a footbridge across it and it's been this way ever since. And, of course, it has made Clonus um, like a ghost town. And um, I don't know why the British Army, for a while, they were up here at a checkpoint. And, in fact, a lot of people call that a spite point because... If they had a checkpoint there, why didn't they let people over and back? Why didn't they check people through? They literally were... It almost seems as if they were trying to strangle the town of Clonus. And, of course, there's great resentment about that. On the other hand, there have been terrible murders around here. Um, there was another man here, another, another policeman. I've forgotten his name for the moment, which is terrible. He was only two or three fields away, too, and he was killed... He was actually had a gun on his lap while he was cutting his fields because he was expecting um, retaliation, and he was shot on his tractor. And um, so, if you like, that's literally under the eyes of the British Army around here. You have had, you have had murders taking place. Uh, they've gone now, but the bridge is still here, and all this desolation is still here, and the feeling is still here. It's just unfortunate. Uh, but the river, as you can hear, is still flowing. So maybe in time. It will go away. He will always see the sort of dark side of things. He will always sort of qualify things okay, but I think he tries very hard not to be dark and not to be solemn. But he actually is, really. When I knew him first, he was maybe a much happier person I'm not saying he's unhappy now he's not but I think the whole situation has has in a way got to him I think but maybe if we'd lived someplace else he would he would still have been the same person I don't know like how would you know that let me let me let me put it this way there was a contractor who lives out in Fermanagh between Dramarden and my grandfather's house out in Fermanagh and he worked for me for years, and I went. I hadn't been into where he lived, away in Curry, and away I went away. And it's a very, very high place, looking down on these lowlands where we live here. And you can see, well, by Monaghan standards, you can see how good the land is compared with the mountain land. And he said I'd never been here before, and he, yes, he looked out, and he said, "Of course, you know." He pointed down to a place called Knockballymore, which is two or three farms from us. And he said, you know, we came, our, my, my people always said, we came, we were put out of there, he said. And he said, we've been here ever since. And it hadn't struck me that people, that generation after generation, people living in this very, very poor formalitarian would look down on the lowlands and say, we were driven out of there. And that's, that is something very strong. And even though there are also Protestants up in that area, there is... The resentment and the feeling that all the time that the land was stolen, was escheated, that we were driven out, that we were beaten, 
the whole the siege of Derry, all that stuff. It's if you like, it's still a hundred, two hundred years. It's it's like the yesterday and the day before. It's still very, very real. So you, that's what you begin with. You begin with the fact that history is very alive and kicking and murdering in this part of the world. It was dark in the house when she got back. She went to the hanging cupboard in the scullery and took out a black lacquered box the size of a shoebox. It contained bandages, scissors, glass jars, gentian violet, iodine and a small envelope Ward had given her, containing four bromide tablets. On the outside it said, for animal use only. She put the four tablets in a mortar bowl, ground them down with a pestle, scooped half the powder into a small glazed jug, poured in water and watched the powder dissolve. She put in her forefinger and tasted it. It had a faintly sour flavour. She then made cold bacon sandwiches, mixed the rest of the powder with mustard and spread it on the buttered bread. A fire in the bedroom grate had burned low as she sat watching the window, waiting, half listening, rereading Nicholas Nickleby, trying to make sense of words on the page. They walked upon the rim of the devil's punch bowl and Smike listened with greedy interest as Nicholas read the inscription upon the stone reared upon that wild spot. Old Nick, young Nick. That convent by a lake long ago in Monaghan town talking about banshees, ghosts and devils with Connie Ryan next to her in the dormitory. Connie lived on a farm opposite the devil's bite in Tipperary, a great gap in the mountains. At the start of every term, she was so homesick she cried herself to sleep, pining for her own fields. She, Beth, would be leaving forever the miraculous skies of Fermanagh, and, oh God, she thought, this place, these fields in May, the standing stone, the five limes, the fountain hill, the long field, the fort field, the bog field, the lake field, and the loch itself, and Corvey Island, and the myriad memories of growing up here. The only world she understood or cared about. Leaving? Never to return? Never? And this morning she had stumbled out in half-light to save a bloated cow. There is a story of mine called Heritage, and Heritage deals with a young chap who joins the UDR, very much against his father's wishes and his mother, uh, sees no reason why he shouldn't. He's a, little, he's a Protestant man, of course. And uh, there was a woman who used to come and help once a week in our house, and she also went over to Johnson's and helped in Johnson's. And uh, she told us that uh, there was tension in the household because there was disagreement in the household about whether the son should join the UDR or not. Because as a woman, money was important and because there are small farmers around here. And, of course, also because of the whole loyalty, the whole um, unionist... Um, conflict which had been going on so long um, now as we were leaving for a holiday I then sat down and I thought this is I, this conflict within a Protestant family is very interesting to me so I, saw, I sat down and I wrote I introduced an uncle who was kind of very very hardcore um, um, almost terrorist Protestant terrorist material and I wrote that story and as we were leaving for Portugal 
I remember for the first holiday we'd had for years, we heard shots. We could hear very clearly. The farm was only two mile, two, literally two or three farms from us. We heard shots, and on the way to Dublin, we heard that this lad, um, Johnson, in fact, had been shot. So I had written the story before the event took place. And I suppose what's particularly frightening is... Um, the retaliation, there was a retaliation. I, I, I don't know if you know of the of the murder of two Catholics locally here. Um, we were at the funeral, we, were, we went to the funerals in Newtown Butler and they were, they were knifed or bayoneted to death. And I included that as a kind of retaliation. I, I, I included it as a retaliation for the murder of, of, of Johnson. And my wife, Margot, met a little woman in Clonus who... One who said, your husband knows something about the murder of my son. Now, he was one of the Catholics who were bayoneted to death. She came out here. Fortunately, I wasn't here. And she persisted and persisted because people had told her that I had inside information. Now, I didn't even know. I knew nothing. You see, you see, you hear stuff from somebody who works in the place. You see bits and pieces in newspapers. You know what the atmosphere is around you because you know the people, you know both both sides. You sit down and you write a story. And it's very frightening then to realise that somebody actually believes that, that you have somehow inside information. I think in a way writers have inside information because they're trying desperately to get to the heart or the truth of what is going on around them. And because, as we all know, um, a good work of fiction is much, much closer to the truth than what you hear in the news because it gets behind the headlines um, that's a cliche isn't it <laughs> that is what good fiction can do it was the dummy's grip that kept her from falling off the chair as normality returned she covered her face aware of a screaming noise in her throat a sort of discordant viol to the dummy's rumbling bass this seemed to go on for quite a while she was aware that her eyes and her nose were running she got up blew her nose, composed herself, looked at the dummy and pointed again at what he had drawn, asking with her mouth, My grave? He nodded, very slowly, opening his hands almost apologetically and shaking his head slowly. She had no reason whatsoever to disbelieve him. He was regarded as a rogue of sorts, but why would he invent such a tale? Yet it must be some kind of mistake, some kind of illusion or nightmare. Perhaps he had imagined it all. There was nothing to suggest that he was lying. And she could see that he was frightened by what he had seen. She would have to find this grave herself. Look down into it. The place where she would be butchered and buried by two men, one of them her lover, whose child she carried. It seemed to her that nothing in the world could be more brutal, unbelievable or grotesque. It acted like a time bomb, and I can I can see exactly where I was sitting with 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 my wife Margot and and, and this man John Collins, and it came up so casually because it was something about our gates and the area around our lake, and he told the story literally in three minutes. There was no sectarian element in it. There was just an old man and a young girl and two people lying in wait. It was actually, as he said, it was a drunk. It was a drunk, not a dummy, as I have. A drunk. Well, I always heard the story when I was a small lad. It was towel at the fireside. There was no televisions at that time. This was a Miss Johnson down the road here at Pasala. And she had 
a low fern that was supposed to be meeting this night and she had all the money took out of the house with her to go off to America with him. And then there was a dale man living in a wee road here, he was the name of Gavin. And when he was coming here by Mr McCabe's place, it seems it was covered with laurels. And this grave was a digging in the laurels, two men digging the grave. So when he came to Lackey Bridge, he met this girl and he asked her where was she going. She said she was going to America. He says, you're not going to America, you'll come home with me, for I see your grave digging up there. So he took her back home anyway and she was brought to see the grave the next day or so, so she went to America after. And for I don't know a long number of years she'll have sent this man some present from America. I know, and that's I'm talking now when I was a lad about say fourteen or fifteen when I heard the story towel and the man that told he always gave a wee bit of a laugh and he said the breed of these peoples in the country that was digging our grave. Right. So that's all I know about this. John, story. it's very interesting. I thought you told me that when she went back with the money, that when she was putting the money back in the strong box, that the old man, the father or whoever he was, woke up and beat the living daylights out of her and put her out of the house. Now, that's what I... I thought. Well, if you didn't tell me that, I must no, have invented I it. I didn't tell you that. Well, I don't then think I invented well, a bad piece done of a good job. I did a good it. job at it. Yeah. <laughs> but I the man was Galvin anyway. Right, okay. He'd be some friend of John's, the pig right. man, you know. You mean John? I do indeed. Dealing the pigs. I do indeed. And there's a couple of people in this country, the, the mother told me the story, there's a couple of the girls, live yet. And I often intended just to go and ask them who these people was. Right. They'd be dead now, because there'd be yes. no woods. Right. So yeah. that really is, that the, is the our origin or genesis of, de- of death and nightingales. And, and as I say, I asked John the year yeah. afterwards, whatever happened to that girl? And he said she went to America. Went to America. And of course, I didn't tell him, well, that's no end to the story. I have to find, yeah. <laughs> I have to find another one. Yeah. So that's how that got written. Yeah. What do you think of the end of the story that he's put yeah, on? It was a great story. Yeah. A great story. I've read it so several times. Well, you, you'd be more inclined to read work that's got to do with around here, like, from well, work that'll be set and here. And counting me telling the story, I read it more often. Or, naturally, naturally, or, yeah. It wouldn't be. Yeah. And would you recognise the land and all from, from the story? Oh, I would, I'd a fair idea of it, you see, and I recognise the, the... We had a dummy around here in our time. We had, did you... He was mulling, wasn't he? He was mulling, uh, I didn't know nobody had mentioned his that. stick and, and grind his teeth, I, I made him so well. I, I had drawn him very exactly, and I wondered about that, I... You know, because a roving dummy is a kind of... A lot of people use a roving yeah. dummy. And I, I, I didn't want to think what to say, well, of course, it, he, it may be a cliché, yeah. but in fact there was a real dummy around yeah, here. And he was a frightening character yeah, until you got to know him. He used to yeah. frighten all the women. Because oh, you'd go and, and he'd write on paper, no jam, please. You described it so well. <laughs> <laughs> no jam, please. No, he was a... And he was an idler. He had yeah. very white hands. He didn't like working. I remember that, yeah. And the women were afraid You'd of him. Meet him trailing a big branch into the town at night. That's right, you would. He mm-hmm. was a scary person. Yeah, yeah. Scary at night. So, in fact, yes, he's based on he's based on a real person too. John, John recognised yeah. that. That's true. Yeah. Oh, it's just only come to my mind that day when we were at the tea that I said to you the bit of a lot of laurels about the front of your place at the tea. That's right. You were. That's talk- what started. You were talking about cleaning scrub. Uh, you were, and this, then you went. This Did grave I know the was story? a digging in the laurels. Yeah. And it's of course so like the Colleen yeah. Bond. You know the two yeah. villains who. Yeah. Who murdered the girl for her money? Mm-hmm. You know, and and uh, I thought, well, there must be something universal here. We better we better look into it. 
So that's about the size of it. That's about the size of it. The two, the two from Anaman said the same thing. We rounded it up. That's about the size of it. Oh, I didn't see it for a long, long time. I knew he was writing it because he had started, and I kind of guessed what he was writing. I thought it was the John Collins story because he had mentioned it a few times. And I was uncomfortable, really, with it. Um, I thought it was going way back and that it was a little bit sort of melodramatic. And I thought he'd have been better maybe write something more modern. And I was in my head slightly against it. And then we were in a holiday in Canada, I think it was, and he started talking about what he was writing about there, which was really about the Knives and the Invincibles, that section of the novel, and what he, what he, how he was linking that up with the story that we had heard. And I thought, that sounds good. And I became much more excited about it because I felt that he was on to the sort of thing that he likes to write about and... and um, it seemed to 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 um, modernise it really from from this melodramatic story. It suddenly um, made it seem part of today. There were clumps of reddish dock leaves growing in the area of light round the oak tree. She used some of them to clear the congealing blood from her lips and chin, aware now that the left side of her face was badly swollen and that she could not close the fingers of her left hand. She continued to clean her face almost unaware of physical pain, her mind unable to take in what had happened and what was still happening. And then she heard her voice saying, There's a grave somewhere here, but nobody to put in it. Then she was saying, This is my body and this is my blood. What's God up to? All's wrong with the world. She began to make her way over and down through the laurels and rhododendron shrubbery towards the double ditch which led to the county road. She had played often in here as a child, knew exactly where the double ditch ran down the middle and the line that led to the dead ash tree drawn clearly on the dummy's map. Ashes to dust. She could hear a thrush singing somewhere and paused to listen. How extraordinarily beautiful the world could be and all the creatures in it, excepting mankind. It's too horrendous, it's too awful. And and the damage inflicted is too awful. And indeed the damage to ourselves that in fact that you that that your gut reaction is like that. You know that it's unhealthy and you know that it's bad and you know that when it comes to the bit, you know what side you're on and you know that it's very dangerous. But that in in, in a sense is 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 where a lot of my writing comes from. The gut feeling the gut um, I don't want to call it hatred or I don't want to call it resentment I don't think it's vindictiveness either I don't know what the word is just gut reaction to the to the historical circumstance that we that we find ourselves ourselves in and I can remember it had started in 1969 and I can remember meeting Brian Friel somewhere and Brian said jeez the bloody awful he said you know you know it's a what was going on. And I can remember saying to him, I mean, I said, it's all rubbish. I said, ignore it. I said, I mean, it's been going on for so long. I said, it's not, it's not stuff for us to be thinking about, you know, as writers. And uh, he said, you're very wrong. And the extraordinary thing is that 
Freel indirectly has written about it and very, very skillfully. But if you like, I have gone right. I have jumped right into the deep end and I've been writing all around me literally since that time. I suppose because of where I live. It's unavoidably because of where I live. Uh, I, I am... It's day-to-day, and I'm experiencing, hearing, and watching, and aware. And so when I sit down to write, what else can come out on paper but what I know? He probably is trying to work out himself how he feels about the situation. I don't think he could... He could... I don't know whether he'll ever come to a conclusion about it, really. I don't know whether other people see him coming to a conclusion about it in his writing, if you take all the various things he has written. Because I've never thought of it in that way. Has he worked it out? Do you think he has worked it out? Like, in in the end, at the end of Death and Nightingales, if you like, with the child coming again, and reborn. And All that even, to me, makes it mixed. enormously interesting. I can remember once stopping at a place called Mullen Van because my wife wanted to pluck marguerites, beautiful big wildflowers at the side of the road. And when we, the radio must be on the car, we got out of the car and she was plucking these. We suddenly heard this orange drum. Boom, it's that terrifying sound to hear. But it was so close, I thought, God, it was beside a little, behind a little derelict schoolhouse. I thought, I've got to see what... Because when you hear these drums coming up the 12th, it's quite sinister and kind of African and frightening, and you know what it's all about. You know it's about dairy, and you know it's about the fact that we're not beaten and all that. So I walked down this little side road until I saw them, and there were two very old men. And the man that was playing the drum, he looked to me blind. He was looking up, and I thought he was sightless. But he was playing the drum magnificently. I was just felt terribly I, I felt so sorry for them. Instead of being frightened, I thought, God, how pathetic. Here they are in remote Ulster, beating this, making this wonderful sound from this drum, the undefeated kind of colonists in this little derelict school. And I, I suppose, I just, I just thought, you know, it's the opposite image of the one you see, the arrogance and all the stuff you see in the streets and the Union Jack. It was just a pathetic rural image. Ward found a down path leading to the floor of the ravine. It went sideways. She followed him in a silence so absolute they could hear each other breathing as they slid from tree to bush to rock down and down again through greying light into the primal gloom of fern and stone of moss and twisted thorn. Like this for ten thousand years or longer. Oak, elm and birch. It was like entering a great green wooded cave and far below the sound of water running over brown stones. Once he had to take her hand to help at a steep place. The sudden mix of horror and heartbreak was so overwhelming that her vision became blinded, her speech thickened and she could not hear what he was asking and kept saying, It's all right. It's nothing. You're sure? I'm sure. Knowing that far from being nothing, everything... The entirety of her life had altered to nightmare. He stopped, watching, as she wiped at her face with the back of her hands, carefully avoiding the swollen part around her left eye. 
When she had regained some control, she saw that he was still looking at her closely with an expression which could almost have passed for concern. Feigning? Smile and smile and be a villain? What were those lines about killing the thing you love most? For him it was killing the thing he loved least. For gold, not me, gold. But then he might be smiling just a little at the mother of his child. It seemed to her now, looking at Ward, that no creature in the world could ever be more dangerous than the creature he was, than the creature she was, than the creature within her. Once down, they set out along the bank of the rivulet through elongated birch and alder, twice fording it to make the walking easier. She followed, aware that the ravine was widening above, a sense of greenish-grey light coming down. They must be nearing the lake shore. She asked the time again, almost half six. Then suddenly, from the greenness of the rivulet, the openness of water, the immense sky and islands beckoning through a low mist, like birth, she thought, or death, If you enjoyed this documentary, you might like to listen to our other Documentary on One productions. Visit rte.ie forward slash doc on one.